to episode 58 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 4th of March 2019. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Yes, you two are back from your holiday to Malta. Oh, sorry, uh, engineering sprint. Uh, have fun there, did you? It was lovely. Yeah, we missed a huge storm. I think, well, if, if Will came back the same weekend I did, there was a huge storm that blew the hotel out, apparently. All right, good timing then. Um, all right, well, we've got plenty of news to get on with. So as usual, let's start with some KDE stuff. And the first one is that KDE are switching their, well, not switching, I suppose, adding to their messaging infrastructure matrix. Yeah, that's right. Um, so they do have IRC, obviously, they've had that for a long time. And Telegram, there are channels there too, but none of those were sort of under their control. Um, so they decided to switch to matrix. Now, have any of you actually used Matrix before? Yes, for a couple of days. I created an account and logged into it. <laughs> did you actually talk to anyone? I did not. I tried to turn off the notifications because it kept pinging me every time something happened and it was driving me mad <laughs> until I realized I was there was multiple channels that you could set the to turn them off on. So, special prize for me. I am using the right client and I've bridged a couple of IRC channels, um, but that's all. That's where the power of Matrix lies, doesn't it? It's the fact that you can bridge to various other communication channels like Telegram, like IRC. Yeah, and although I think the quality of those bridges in particular, maybe the Telegram, the IRC one works. I'm not sure about Telegram. There's one for Slack as well. I mean, if it could nail those features, um, of course, in an unofficial capacity, which is the problem, then it'd be a really useful platform. But it's still difficult to understand what why they've switched it or the actual platform itself. No, I think I think that we've mentioned this before, but I I find the whole pitch of Matrix, its whole federated decentralization as a platform where the clients are uncertain, very difficult to kind of describe to someone who may not necessarily care. They just want to chat with their friends. It's the same problem actually with KDE and telepathy and their various platforms that they keep refining and refactoring. I can't keep on top of that for the same reason. I, you know, I still want to just use ICQ. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit like Mastodon, isn't it? That that's very difficult to explain to someone who's not technical. And they'd be like, why would I use that rather than just Twitter or Facebook? Definitely. Definitely. I think it's it's a crazy problem for, it's ironic for a piece of communication software. (laughs) But maybe that's our job, you know, or the job of somebody who implements a client to, you know, push out, push matrix out of the, out of the view and context and actually just make it functional. Yeah. And this adoption is going to help, at least in the sort of open source world, because KDE is a pretty big project. So you never know, it might, push it towards being a standard but yeah i don't know it's just that network effect problem i used to use um kd's kind of combined messaging services through telepathy you could have things like google messenger and icq back in the day and you could even work with telegram but over i've still got those kind of accounts configured in kd and as time has gone on they've all kind of silently failed and stopped working which drives me up the wall that's one of the things i didn't like about the way the I think was it the Ubuntu feature or a GNOME feature that integrated all the messengers into the top right corner because you never knew what messaging service you were applying back from or it was a bit opaque. Mm. And the problem is if you had multiple people on multiple accounts and you were trying to access them through the same one for, you know, maybe one was a work, you know, that delineation between work contacts and friend contacts and 
what time of day contacts. I never found that clear, so I always found that a bit of a mess. So mm. I don't know. Well, presumably you have to use quite a few different communication channels for your job. Wouldn't it be easier to bring it all under one sort of matrix um, client? Well, no, I don't have to. I have to use IRC because we use IRC as our internal uh, communication mechanism. And, of course, Freenode as well is the the place where most people hang out who are working on and around Ubuntu. Um, and, of course, we've got Telegram. But, no, I, I like those things being separate. I like the ability to close my IRC client at the end of the day and it not pinging me messages on my phone at all hours whenever I get a mention on IRC. So, no, I have um, I did play with uh, things like Pigeon, which aggregated all these things together years and years ago. Uh, and as Graham says, they've slowly fallen by the wayside as either uh, they've closed their protocol or they've changed something and, and actively blocked access or it's just broken and nobody cared. But no, I, I I don't miss I don't miss having it all in one place. I like the separation, and I like being able to to silence the the notifications and get away from it all. Fair enough. Um, all right, so Caden uh, Live as well is being or has been refactored. Yeah, it's something that they'd want to do for quite a while. Um, now it's it's really not ready to go as a fully featured uh, setup, but it was to get rid of a lot of things that they had wanted to for quite a while, but never really had time. So they were trying to keep the other one functional. Um, so don't expect it to be up to the same standard and have all the same features, but this will be them going forward with a, a much cleaner code base and fixing an awful lot of problems that they had with that one. So you're saying they took the best video editor and broke it. <laughs> it's, it sounds spooky familiar for KDE, doesn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> 4.0 was fine. <laughs> Let's carry on. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they needed to do this, though, in the long term. Well, the other one hasn't gone away, though. That's the thing. I mean, the other one is still there, and they would probably say, keep using it, and don't don't switch too early, even though there is an app image, and it's really easy. You could try it, <laughs> but uh, just don't do it yet. Yeah, I suppose, especially if you're on an LTS of Ubuntu or something, then you're going to be yeah, stuck exactly. using an old version for ages anyway, so... Yeah, and uh, you put something about K Public Transport. That's a great name. So yeah, well, this is a quick one. This is from the guys that are doing the uh, itinerary KDE itinerary project. And one of the things about making it really useful is to get access to live data from various transport companies. And they are looking for people to look at the now. I'm not going to say it right, but Navitia or Navitia. I'm not sure, but they are a data source aggregator for various companies and they have a website with a map and you can zoom into wherever you live and see if the companies that you know and use are there on it. And if you know of any other ones to get them, get in touch with the Navitia guys and they will then add that to it and it aggregates it all through the, the Google um, GTFS system. Um, I mean, I guess that was designed for access through Google Maps and stuff, but I mean, the API makes sense for others to use too. So uh, yeah, they just were looking for a bit of a dig out there. This really is like my risk five. You just have to keep going on about this, don't you? <laughs> I do. Yeah, you're right. Because I mean, well, there are ways to map with my phone. That's fine. Uh, getting access to knowing when the next bus is, those things are tricky. Where, like, you see there's an app for the Torino bus service, which is really annoying because, like, 
apparently in Torino, they've got such open data that you can get access to it on your phone. Whereas I'm sitting there going, nah, I would also like that too, but I don't even know if the companies do. And I had a look and there's all the major ones in Dublin are covered, which is quite interesting. So yeah, just need a, a front end on it and then we're sorted. I was just looking at the the Nav- Navitia. How did we decide it was pronounced? I don't know how we've decided to say it. I've said it twice differently. <laughs> I'll, I'll say it's Navitia. I was looking at their website, the Republic of Ireland is really well catered for, whereas England itself is empty. There's um, there's a what is that? A bus service in Manchester, I think, and that is it. London, nothing. The rest of England, nothing. So yes, let's get that fixed. All right, well, that's enough KDE nonsense. Um, let's talk about Project Common Voice. And Mozilla are boasting some pretty decent stats here for their data set of voice in all different languages and stuff. If you don't know what this project is, the idea is that you, you go to the Mozilla um, Common Voice website and you're given a piece of text to read into your computer, and then it is uploaded anonymously to uh, to Mozilla. And then they process that information and try and build up this massive data set, which has got uh, languages, English, and it's not only English, but um, I think there was Scottish English in there, and Irish English, and English English, and American English, and French, and German, and different sorts of Chinese, and Welsh, and all sorts of languages. So it really is a, a very comprehensive database of speech with the uh, accompanying text that goes with it. So it should be good quality information. So it would be very, very interesting to see what people build with this um, with this massive data set. And you may know it from such projects as Minecraft, the hugely successful voice <laughs> assistant. Now, it is good to have an open data set for this that anyone can use. But I do question the logic of some of the effort here, like Welsh. Like, like don't only like a few thousand people speak Welsh. And okay, you could say, well, preserving a language and stuff like that, fair enough. But fucking Esperanto. No one actually speaks that. Why would you bother? They will do after Britain leaves the EU. <laughs> <laughs> oh, watch the documentary in the EU, and they use it in the EU all the time, apparently, as a standard pass between language. So there you go. No, they use English. They don't. They use Esperanto. Really? Yeah, apparently. Well, I never. But here, here's the weird thing about this, right, is the fact that even for Irish, as in Gaelic, they have two of the types of Gaelic. Yeah, there's three kinds, and they have two of them, which... It's quite interesting because so they've even got a breakdown of the regional dialects of languages, which is quite cool because, you know, the likes of Google's not going to do that, you know, or Amazon or any of those, especially some of the other ones that they have, like uh, Cable, whatever that one is, Cabell, uh, I'm not sure how you say it, or Tartar or Kyrgyz, exactly all those things that I can't even pronounce. They have too many vowels or consonants beside each other. Um but I think the one thing I noticed was the fact that there seemed to be a bit of an underrepresentation of uh, female voices, which was quite bad. So I think, like, there's only 41% male, 10% female. Uh, I guess the rest are undecided or undetermined. So, but I think it'd be good to get a, a more even spread across the bands. It's not a huge surprise, that, though, is it, really? Unfortunately. I think also it's worth mentioning that this is um, sort of released Creative Commons Zero, so you can basically do whatever you want with it. It's like no rights reserved. And while we're waiting, you know, I know you're always complaining about Amazon Alexa and that kind of stuff, Joe, and this is exactly what the kind of stuff that we need if we're going to implement something like that. Not that it will ever happen, but uh, <laughs> yeah. at, at least at least the voice data set isn't stopping it. Well, I think that the problem scope is too 
enormous for uh, something like Mycroft. A really good example of where this is useful um, on the Mozilla website is Fusion PBX, which is you know an asterisk type system where you can set up your own PBX uh, and it will transcribe um, voicemail to you and send you the resulting text. I think that's a much smaller problem to solve uh, and this data could enable something like that. And I, I think that's a really useful feature and a good example of the sorts of things we could see coming. Yeah, well, hopefully it will continue to grow and do well. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL. That's for late night Linux. And you can get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets as they call them with full root access in data centers all around the world with really fast networking and really fast SSDs. And they offer various distros like Ubuntu and Fedora and Debian and CentOS and even FreeBSD and some container distros. And they also support custom distros so you can get anything you want running. You can either start with a base distribution and build up what you want manually, or you can just go for one of their one-click apps like Basic Lamp and Lemp Stacks, WordPress, Discourse, GitLab. And these droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them up to just have ridiculous numbers of CPUs and amounts of RAM and storage. And they've recently introduced a new type of droplet. So you've got your standard ones, your CPU-optimized ones, which are really powerful, but also what they call general purpose, which is essentially like the CPU-optimized ones, but with more RAM. So now you can really pick from exactly what you need, depending on the application that you need to deploy. And if you need any extra storage, you can pick from either block storage or object storage, just attach it to your droplet, simple to get going. I've been using DigitalOcean for years, and I've always been happy with the service, particularly the backups and snapshots. Everything's just so easy to use. So if you want a Linux VM that you've got complete control over, go to do.co slash LNL. Get your $50 credit and get started. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, well, let's move on. Um, And uh, it seems that all the database companies just fucking hate Amazon. And uh, this time it's the, the boss of MariaDB has been laying into AWS. Yeah, Michael Howard, who is the CEO of MariaDB, um, was at one of his um, his big get-togethers for MariaDB, um, and he had a keynote presentation where he basically laid in to AWS and Oracle. He said that these big proprietary operators were strip-mining open-source technologies and companies because they weren't feeding back to the open-source project, which is fair enough. But the article that I read went on to say that people like AWS are showing uh, performance results for other database systems, notably their own database system, which is based on MySQL, uh, and showing that their performance statistics were much better than um, than MariaDB. But um, you dig into it a bit more and find out that MariaDB, when optimized, and that is something you can buy from AWS, but they won't give it to you for free, performs better than than the rest of them. So yes, I think he's a little bit annoyed with AWS, not only for taking from the open source community and not giving back, but also pitching their own technologies as being superior, which is perhaps not necessarily the case. Well, is it really a surprise that AWS would prioritize their own products over random third party ones? Probably not. And if they are selling an optimized version of MariaDB, then that's where they make their money. And if you just put a vanilla 
version on the hardware, then obviously it's not going to run as well. I don't see what's the surprise here. And, you know, this does go back to the Redis Labs thing and the MongoDB thing where they are acting like surprised that a company has taken open source and made some money out of it. But there's no restriction with open source software. That's sort of half the point of it, isn't it? That you can just do what you want with it, including make a load of money. Well, it is half the point, and the other half of the point is that you do get involved and contribute back to the common good, um, and that's his beef here. Yeah, but it's not part of the license specifically. I mean, it reminds me a lot of um, big evil corporations not paying their um, corporation tax, and you know they have a legal obligation to their shareholders to to pay as little tax as possible, and it's the same. AWS is huge. They could completely reinvent MariaDB if they wanted to and implement their own brand new database. This isn't, it's not going to change anything going back to MariaDB, who, and MariaDB itself has got an interesting history and an interesting history of trying to leverage open source licenses. Um, they, you know, they, they use a dual licensing model. Um, they're, they're famously forked from, uh, MySQL and Monty Wadenius is, um, the guy that originally started all has been made, been hugely successful because of what open source licenses they've chosen and what it is. And I guess this is kind of a second or third phase of open source development where it, it, if it's not going the way of the old school, then, and I, I don't agree with it either, to be clear, but it's the, it's the letter of the license and no one's breaking any laws. Exactly the point that you, there's just nothing you can do about it. And if you don't have a business model that can work with this, then you're just shit out of luck. And that's bad, and it's mm. bad for open source, but that doesn't change the reality. And trying to just make these changes to licenses like Redis Labs have done and MongoDB have done and making their products proprietary, that's not going to help either because people will just not use them and because there's enough competition in this space to use something that is open source. I think we should continue this topic after the uh, admin. All right, let's uh, let's do that then. Let's move on and and talk about how in about a year, Failing will update the version of Lineage on his phone. <laughs> Just before seventeen is out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is Lineage sixteen point which is based on Android Pie, which is nine, isn't it? And it is actually available for our phones, yeah. um, the OnePlus 3T. But I've not upgraded yet. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not touching it. No way. Not <laughs> not this. Not this quickly. I already hate 15.1 though, with its daft power saving and oh no, I'm not going to notify you about things. I'm going to save your battery by disabling the notifications from email and Telegram. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you might as well just stop working while you're at it. Grr. Oh, I don't have any of that because I've got the Google goodness. So. Yeah, well, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I did flash out on a OnePlus One, um, and it seemed to be all fine. So uh, I'm, I'm tempted to do it on my phone, but there's no um, root yet. You, you can root it with Magisk, but you can't. Uh, is that how you say it? I think it is. But you can't. Uh, there's no official Sue package for 16.0 yet. So and you use root, do you? Yeah, for Adaway. Ah, oh, you're killing the internet. Think of the creators. I know. I'm killing online journalism, <laughs> aren't I? I'm so hypocritical. But what's really important here is that 14.1, which was available for shitloads of devices, 
has just been abandoned now, which you kind of understand they're a fairly small team. They only have a certain number of resources or whatever, but it means that a lot of devices are now just out in the cold and you having to scratch around for other random custom ROMs or, you know, unofficial versions of Lineage. And that is a bit shit, really. Yeah, this is where really, really hope that the open phones that are coming can do the job here where, you know, you're not kind of stranded on an ancient kernel version somewhere with no drivers or anything like that. And, you know, if that's all in the kernel, be happy days. Well, we had Todd on last time, and you never know. They might deliver that this year, as promised. There was actually a blog post that came out shortly after we released that episode where they went into a bit more detail and said that it was going to be in Q3, I think. So here's hoping on that one. But yeah, I will have to upgrade my phone at some point to 16.0, but I don't know when that'll be. Yeah, you go first. Yeah, I'll do it first. I'll be the guinea pig, eh? And then I can tell you, except that I've got the Google apps, which complicates things. It's probably easier if you haven't. Although it does say make sure your firmware's up to date, and that was a big red flag, because I know that you'd had real problems with that before. So oh, that's a pain. No, <laughs> you can do it first this time. Oh. I fucking did it first last time. I've just got everything set up the way I like it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I might just buy um, the new OnePlus 7, which isn't uh, out yet, but they've leaked images of it. It's got uh, like full screen, but a pop-up selfie camera instead of a notch. Stop. Which is just, that's just a <laughs> recipe for disaster, isn't it? Don't take that to the beach. You don't want to be getting sand in that. Um, all right, well, Lineage will probably be rendered... Uh, defunct in your country failing but thanks to Brexit we'll be alright <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll be using your pots and pieces of string <laughs> you won't need phones in your Mad Max like future <laughs> pig shit will be your currency <laughs> so this is the EU radio equipment directive then you must know about this you're in the EU yeah it's essentially saying that anybody who has a device, the manufacturer has to make sure that the user of the device is not up to bad things with the radio. Um, whereas prior to this, you had to make sure that you weren't like broadcasting and interrupting a radar or whatever you were doing. Like there's quite funny images that you can see online where um, someone with a wire access point gone mad has broadcast right across the airport's radar. But from now on, it's going to be the manufacturers that are potentially going to be locked down. Now, it's not set in stone yet, um, so there is still time to influence this as well because it would be quite a bad thing because then if you have lockdown firmware, um, well, you don't unless you're in control of that, then you don't know what it's doing, so that's not good. Yeah, so does it mean that would we be able to buy a router without any firmware on in theory because so we'd still get open work on something? Well, you'd have to have the radio be locked down. Right. So, you know, and a lot of those are quite integrated into the, the memory and, you know, it's, it's generally a system on chip anyway. So yeah. you don't, you wouldn't really be able to mess around with that anymore. It seems like a terrible idea. I, weirdly, this weekend, I uh, put open word on my old BT home hub, um, which is a really interesting little project because you have to take it open and find the RX and TX pads for serial transmission to it to get it to boot into a safe mode and push an ISO to it. Um, and I love being able to do that kind of stuff, as I'm sure we all do. And it means that you can, you know, subvert and reuse old hardware. So it seems really, I can understand where it's coming from, but it's massively counterproductive for people like us. Yeah, I really can't imagine that there's this huge 
amount of rogue devices that are causing problems to anybody. If somebody wants to be nefarious, they're going to be able to do this anyway. You don't have to, you know, have a device with a dodgy Wi-Fi modem on it. You can do this, you know, if you want to be really disruptive, you don't need these things to do it. So it's more like a, if you were to be slightly conspiracy oriented, a way to either get control of your radios or sort of a backhander to the manufacturers to say, you know, we want you to keep churning out devices and that'll keep you happy and, you know, deal with that way. I wonder if this is analogous to the US right to repair movement where yeah. people are, you know, having their tractors locked down so that they can't fix them themselves. Can I just say at this point that never in my life have I ever heard it referred to as open word. <laughs> I've always heard open WRT. I don't know where I've got that from. Probably one of those things like F-Stab, where you just read it and just <laughs> never hear it said. Oh, Graham's the only one who downloaded the source tarball, and there's a directory <laughs> in there that says, hello, my name is, and I pronounce open word, open word. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, this sounds like um, yet more terrible stuff from the faceless bureaucrats in Europe. And thank God we're leaving, taking back control. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> I'm still hoping for that second referendum. Right, on to a bit of admin then. Thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. And the Patreon does seem to be ticking up very, very slowly. So thank you for that. If you want to join them, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support and there's various ways there. And remember, if you support us on Patreon for $5 or more, then you can get an ad-free RSS feed, which is nice. Uh, if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And if you're listening to this before March the 16th, then come to Reading on that Saturday afternoon slash evening. Uh, there's uh, some some guys at the Ubuntu podcast. I've never heard of them, but uh, sounds like it should be good fun. Yeah, they're having a get-together anyway. So, yeah, that should be good. Just in a pub called the Brewdog. It's right in the middle of Reading. It does actually say on the website, on the, the get-together website, that it finishes at 11, but I found out the pub and they close at 2. So I'll be there at 2 o'clock, don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, everyone come to that if you are around near Reading. So that should be good fun anyway, come to that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate, 18.04 and 18.10. They've got an ever-growing range of laptops, desktops, and servers, and a really nice-looking all-in-one. And almost everything's configurable with the different CPUs and the amounts of RAM and storage, so you'll be able to find something that is exactly right for your needs. They range from fairly affordable machines, which are ideal for office tasks, browsing, email, that sort of thing, all the way up to real powerhouses with the latest graphics cards, which are ideal for 3D art, graphic design, video editing, machine learning. And do get in contact with them if you've got any questions about the various machines that they sell and some customizations that aren't necessarily on the website. They're very, very helpful and friendly, and they'll do their very best to sort you out. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And there's a little drop-down at checkout. You can select late-night Linux, so if you do buy one of the machines, make sure that they know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, well, speaking of Brexit, um, I was having a conversation with Paddy, formerly of Linux Luddites, and um, we got talking about this idea that the only real way to make money from FOSS 
is sort of support or services or training. And so why would anyone make FOSS applications that are simple to install and maintain and work perfectly out of the box? Maybe that explains why everything in the Linux and open source world is so overcomplicated and ultimately a bit shit. So I don't know, is that a controversial thing to say? I'm interested to know, first of all, what we define make money to mean. Is it that the initiator of the project would have enough money to retire to the Bahamas? Or is it just that there's enough money to keep the project going to pay the running expenses and perhaps you know a modest salary for the, the people working on the project? I would say the measure of success is being able to sort of swan off to Malta for a week <laughs> randomly. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think just self-sustaining, really. Um, it, you know, it may be making shitloads of money like AWS does. But yeah, well, let's just say at least self-sustaining. Mm. I think for a small project, I, I haven't got any specific examples, but a small project could probably get by on sponsorship. So this is, you know, corporate gold level sponsors who are paying, um, I don't know, $10,000 a year or something like that to, to be an official sponsor and have their logo on that project's website. Um, and then there are things like... Um, advisory boards and you know panels that you can be on those sorts of things which are typically bringing in something in the region of ten thousand dollars a year if you've got one or two developers uh, on your project then you still need a significant number of sponsors to pay them uh, a good wage but it's it's perhaps achievable um and so you don't need to to be asking for people to pay for your software. You can still make it free and you can still make it self-sustaining. Yeah, but a much simpler business model is that of support. If you look at Red Hat, for example, you buy support with that. You can get a free version of RHEL if you're a developer or whatever, but if you're looking to deploy RHEL in any sort of serious situation, then you're paying them for the support, whether that is the kind of lowest level all the way up to like an engineer will come within five minutes or whatever. But like that support is, you know, a very simple business model. And with that in mind, what is the incentive to make something simple and easy to use if you could just make it complex and therefore make it hard for people to manage themselves? The support business model falls down when you have people on staff who can fix this themselves and you have a community of users around you who are going on stack overflow and going on reddit and posting solutions to to common problems at that point why do you need to pay for support when you can just get a guy who knows about computers to google it and fix it for you for yourself well that's the whole aws thing we talked about this a few episodes ago you've got on-premises versus the cloud it's much easier and simpler to just farm all of that stuff out to someone else than trying to pay someone to scratch around Googling and looking at Stack Exchange or whatever. Certainly easier, but I think it's significantly more expensive. But perhaps that's not a problem for, for the sorts of companies that we're talking about. Well, just this week, we found out from Lyft's IPO that they are going to be spending, I think, over the next two years or something, $300 million on AWS. That's insane. It is insane. No wonder they're doing so well, eh? You'd have to question how much of that, though, is actually warranted for a service where you're essentially just booking cars. Like, it's a database. 
And, you know, while you may not have to have um, such a colossal quantity of traffic on your own server, you know, you could load balance that and you could have something more simple at the back end. I think a lot of people love the idea of, oh, we're using the cloud or we're doing this massively over-engineered architecture and make things far too complicated for themselves. You know, I think the vast majority of open source software is easy enough to use. If you want to do something really specific and custom, maybe that's when you should pay somebody to get involved. Well, a lot of time, I think a lot of people try stuff, make an absolute mess of it, and then get in the consultants, and then it costs an absolute fortune to fix the sort of way over spec in all the wrong areas sort of thing that they've done. So do you disagree with the premise then that it is sort of almost deliberately designed to be as complex as possible? I don't think it's deliberately designed to become, I think some things are just really difficult and, you know, you'd have to be a master of so many different areas to be able to be able to manage. I mean, setting up a website's fine. Making it that you don't have cross-site scripting is trickier. Uh, tuning the database so you can take, you know, a million people hitting it at once. Yeah, yeah. You know, these things, they get more complicated as you go up. And at a certain point, everybody's going to say, that's just not my skill area. I just can't do it. Um, and I don't think, you know, there's nobody scheming behind their open source project going, oh, yes, when they hit this level, that's when all shit goes loose. And I'm going to have them all coming in looking for money. Because as an open source developer, you hardly want 10,000 people to hit you on your shiny new Riot server or and, you know, ping the hell out of you going, oh, I don't have to do this. Because they don't scale either. So I think most people just want to make a living. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's deliberate, but I'm just saying there's no incentive to make it simple. Well, if you make it too complicated, nobody's ever going to try it in the first place. So you're saying there is the incentive to make it simple enough to use? I think given a unlimited budget of time and developers, every project would make things, you know, one-click install or, you know, the are similar. I mean, I don't think they're going out of their way to try and make it difficult. I just think of all the things you have to do, security, you're going to take a, a, as your priority. And then after that, what's left, you know, you try and make the new product, you try and compete with the ones that you're trying to compete against because you're all competing against each other. And, you know, while making things as easy as possible would be great, you don't always have the resources for it. But like, look, take for instance, the Nextcloud guys with the Snap install. I mean, setting up your own Nextcloud instance is not rocket science, but it's not super easy either whereas that snap install is one command and you have a fairly decently set up sort of uh, low to medium size system i was actually thinking about Nextcloud there and the snap and how that is just so simple it is just one command and you've got it running straight away and i've done it the other way and it is a lot more complex so yeah that that is a very good example of that but there you have where someone else who had the time and effort, like Canonical, had the time and effort to generate the Snaps setup. Like It's not like the Nextcloud guys went out and designed a system to package applications. And then on top of that, you know, you, you can only fight your corner and then collectively maybe, you, you know, you can work on something together. So I think I look at this question slightly different um, to you three. It's like, to me... Um, open source exists and existed in much the same way that the internet existed. It, it was a cool, neat thing, and it solved a specific set of problems. Um, the fact that people then want to make money out of it, it is a very natural extension of that, but it's not what the architecture of the original creation was designed to solve. Um, and so 
the the fact that people make money out of supporting that is is kind of an obvious choice, but it's not intrinsically part of of what open source software is. And by that, I mean. I don't think it's made complicated simply so that people make money out of it. It's made complicated because the problems that you want to solve are the interesting ones and the ones of making it easy to install are the boring ones. It's a bit like writing documentation. And that, of course, comes when money comes in. And I primarily want money to go into open source software to maintain and to secure its future. And I think that's a, diff- a completely different set of problems than this, which I think is two or three different kind of questions jumbled together. So you're saying that it's all about itch scratching? Yeah, totally. I think I still think there's a huge, and it's still very early days. But I think um, having worked with software developers and messed around a bit with it myself, that's very much what kind of motivates you when you're developing is is to just, if you can, if if it's not a real job, to do the stuff that's really interesting that adds a really cool feature. Even if you're alienating people who really want this feature or that feature, you kind of focus on the stuff that you find engaging in your in your mind yeah a lot of these projects are started out as hobbies you know somebody has found uh, a, a particular problem they are interested in and they solve that problem for their use case and rarely consider the 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 implications of the decisions they make at the very beginning in the sort of wider lifetime support of the of the product so yeah i totally agree with graham on that one so what are the three questions that i have mixed up there then graham so the only real way to make money out of FOSS are support services and training. So I don't think FOSS doesn't exist to make money. So if in my mind, FOSS exists and then people see it as an opportunity for business, which is great. But the two things are, it's, it's like a straw man argument of FOSS. You need to make money out of FOSS for FOSS to exist. It's not that, that it's not true. Um, so why would anyone make FOSS easy to in- install? It's, it, to me, that's a, it's a non-logical progression of the same argument because the two things are different. So is this why everything is so overcomplicated and shit? No. Um, it just, I see it as, I do see it like the internet. Um, people want to make money. It's, it's like publishing on the internet and people pushing adverts and trying to make money out of, and you know, they're saying that publishing is going to die if people can't sell adverts on the internet. Well, to me, the internet existed before the World Wide Web. It was still really awesome and incredibly useful and if so we'll go back to that and I feel the same with FOSS. Um, FOSS is fundamentally incredibly important and vital but it's the open source element the innovation element that comes from that and not necessarily the money part of it because that wasn't part of the original architecture even though it's a vital part of innovation. You're saying that if we go back to it all being hobbyists then it's not the end of the world and things might slow down a bit but we'll still have the fundamentals of FOSS. Yeah, and I think for me personally, what's most important is that things don't become more closed. The web, for example, is a huge threat to open source software licensing, and, and AWS is part of that, and the fact that most of it is closed, and it's the same with Google's ecosystem. So I'm more concerned about maintaining things, keeping them open, because that's the only way we can move forward. And if we can't move forward, then we've got to go back and kind of fork in a more open direction. I had no idea that you'd feel quite so strongly about this, Graham. I'm surprised. <laughs> Well, maybe it's the same for a lot of us, but we've chosen careers that deal with Linux and open source because it's interesting and because it's open and because it's something slightly philanthropic about it. That's that's what excites me about my day job. You know, that is why I work at Canonical and that's what I want to see succeed. Otherwise, I would have just graduated from computer science and gone to work for Microsoft programming databases. (laughs) That dystopian future is in front of us all. (laughs) (laughs) 
so Joe, what do you think? Do you think it is still shit and overcomplicated, or do you think that there is actually a, a more deeper sort of reason for it all? Well, I didn't go into this fully believing that thesis, I must say. Um, I'd thought it was one plausible explanation for why things seem a bit overcomplicated. But I think that Graham's argument of the just finding an itch to scratch sort of makes probably more sense, really, and that you do that first and then the money comes later. But I think there probably are people out there who do, or companies out there who do deliberately, well, maybe not deliberately, maybe it's not as black and white as that, but I think they do make it complex and um, just think, well, that's fine. We offer training or we offer support for it. So it doesn't matter that it's overcomplicated and more complicated than it perhaps needs to be. But maybe it's just a case of obviously not all FOSS is the same and not all projects are the same. And some are influenced by this idea and others aren't. So I suppose a big fat fence sit from me there. Maybe if it's too easy, it's almost the worst extreme because then you don't know how it works properly and it's been done magically. Well, yeah, like that Nextcloud Snap install, I think is potentially dangerous for people who have never done it before. I think if you know what that's actually doing and setting up the Apache server and the database and everything and you know what the nuts and bolts of it are, then it just makes it much easier for you. It's like, I'm not using Ansible or something to script a load of stuff that you've done before, but if you've never got into it before, then it's, it lowers the barrier of entry too too low and makes it just dangerous because when things go wrong, people don't know how to fix it and they don't know how to maintain it and that's when you get security problems. So maybe we do need a high enough barrier for FOSS, otherwise people will just get in trouble. But no doubt we'll, we'll have a lot of opinions from the audience, so remember latenightlinux.com slash contact if you want to tell us how wrong we are. But I suppose that will do it for this time then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, when Graham would have swanned off somewhere snowboarding or something. Don't break a leg. <laughs> I broke my, li- my ribs last time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, I injured my ribs recently and that was bad enough. So oh, oh, It was awful. I don't fancy that. Second day, I had to carry on. Oh, man. <laughs> Drink your way through the whole yeah. yeah, it was French, French medication. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, right. Until then, then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.